Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. In this momentous week, we have some extraordinary commentators for you. Up first will be William Spriggs, Professor of Economics at Howard University and Chief Economist of the AFL-CIO. He is followed by Morris Pearl, Chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires, which is, as it sounds, an organization of very wealthy people who do not subscribe to the idea that we are overtaxed and who press for such things as an increase in the minimum wage. And we end on a somewhat lighter note with Jared Rizzi, host of the podcast At the Table with Jared Rizzi. We go now to William Spriggs. Bill, welcome to the broadcast and thank you for coming along. Thank you for having me. How do you divide your time between the AFL-CIO, the umbrella group for all trade unions in the country, and Howard University, one of the leading universities of the country? So the AFL-CIO buys out some of my classes and I get to spend that researching labor topics, uh, pretty much what comes to mind and what I think is essential for the unions to understand. And uh, then I spend the rest of the time teaching uh, fortunately for me, I teach graduate students labor economics, so uh, there's total synergies there. And then in the summer, I, I spend all the time with the AFL-CIO. The question which comes up always is what happened to the unions? How is it that union membership is so far down at a time when we see the desperate need to get wages up across the board, and yet unionization is in retreat, it would appear. Yes, well, because it increasingly became difficult to organize, and now it, it's it's almost virtually impossible. The rules changed is the quick answer to it. The changes in the labor laws that took place in the 40s, the Taft-Hartley amendments that took movement out of labor, uh, really transformed America because the Wagner Act allowed labor to act as a movement. And the rapid unionization of workers was because that was by pretty radical leaders, Walter Ruther uh, among them, who were aggressive about bringing uh, workers in. And then uh, Taft-Hartley meant that uh, workers could not act in solidarity. And, and, and too many people don't understand that. They don't understand that. So, so in the United States, as an example, uh, if this were the 30s and Walmart wanted to continue to do what it's doing, and they said, well, we're not going to let these workers organize, then plumbers could have said, oh, and you think we're going to cross their picket line and fix your plumbing? Not going to happen. And electricians could have said, oh, you think somebody's going to fix your lights? Not going to happen. Teamsters could have said, do you think you're going to get deliveries? Not going to happen. So workers could have acted as a movement. And all workers could have said to Walmart, you can't behave this way. Now you can't do that. Uh, the, unions, the, the, the unions could not act as a movement. It, it would be equivalent to um, Unidos complaining about the death of Hispanic workers as meat packers, and the NAACP was told, no, you, you, 
you can't show solidarity. You can't say that you care about all humans and you can't say you care about uh, the rights of all people of color. You can't show any solidarity. Unidos can raise all they want to about these meat packers, but uh, you can't have another civil rights group do that too. Uh, and you wouldn't have a movement. We have a division now, don't we, Bill, where those states that traditionally have been friendly to unions are by far the most prosperous, where more people have better paid jobs, and yet the movement is to the so-called 14B or right-to-work states where unionization is very difficult indeed, the southern states essentially, which remain financially in the totality of things behind the northern states, which are union states. How is that explainable? If you actually looked at a map showing the evolution of right to work, you would see how it's spreading. And if you saw a map showing the drop in union density, uh, you would see that that's spreading as well. It's like a disease. So we're now to over half the states are right to work and the disease of union density within a state falling below uh, 5%, you see that same sort of pattern uh, repeated. It started with South Carolina and then it kind of spreads. Uh, the problem is that once the dynamics get in place to turn a state anti-union, it, 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 it has its own dynamic. And it's very unfortunate because exactly what you were saying, states that still have unions still have the voice of workers within democracy, small d. And so there are greater levels of consensus about how workers should be treated. And you see whether it's minimum wage laws, access to unemployment benefits, the size of the unemployment benefits, workers' compensation, um, even what happens if I'm a female worker and I'm unable to find work, uh, what are benefits under uh, temporary assistance to needy families, even to the, when do we invest in kids to make them productive workers? Um, school expenditures and public schools are lower in these non-union states. It, it's a total attack on the working class and that's, and that's made possible because union density, once it starts to dwindle, removes workers' voice from the democracy. Tell me, and explain to our viewers, primarily, uh, what is meant by right to work, the so-called 14Bs. If you could explain that for us. Mm -hmm. So early on, uh, there were two ways of organizing unions, and the Wagner Act helped the industrial unions who would go in and think of the United Auto Workers or think of the United Steel Workers, or the more famous case, the United Mine Workers, where you organize everybody in the mine. It's not a craft union, it's not a skill, it's the, it's the organization of the workers together. In that environment, workers are treated equally, and in fact, the Wagner Law requires that. In the South particularly, that was total anathema because it would require equality of blacks and whites. And so racist movements within the US were so disturbed by this model and they advertised against this model by saying, if you let this continue, we're gonna have white workers being forced to say brother to these apes. That was their words. And so as a consequence, they were able to use this racist 
dull whistle in order to get Southern states to act against the organization of workers. And Southern states, once the Taft-Hartley laws were put in place, seized upon this amendment to instantly attack unions as pro-integration, as, as forms of racial equality. And so they, they, they were able to implement laws that prevented uh, that formation. So what happens in a right to work state is the union by law must represent all workers in the facility, all workers equally. But in a right to work state, I can choose not to pay union dues. So if the union negotiates pension, health care, and then serves as my arbiter in case of a grievance because the employer is being unfair to me and I'm trying to protect my job, the union has to represent me, but I don't have to pay any dues. Well, obviously this is a huge free rider problem. It would be the same as saying, let's have a free rider on paying taxes. And everybody who thinks that Donald Trump is unfit to be president and you don't wanna pay taxes, raise your hand and then we don't have to pay taxes. Uh, that's the same principle here. And of course, the whole thing would fall apart. So, so it, it removes the, the energy, it removes the resources that unions can use to actually do their job of representing workers. And so right to work simply means, can I be represented by a union without having to pay union dues? Can I cheat in short? In this, tremendously ugly time. Nothing is more apparent than the disparity between rich and poor, between worker and those who have been able to acquire a lot of wealth. What is the union offering and why aren't people buying it? Do the unions need a new product? Is the old product of shorter working hours, higher wages, yes, but some of the other things, job protection, etc. Is that product out of date? Do the unions need to go to the public with a new, more acceptable product that would get their membership up? It's not the popularity of unions that is suffering right now. In fact, unions are at their all-time high in terms of the way the public perceive us. They perceive us as a solution. What they don't perceive is how to get there. What's the roadmap? And the problem is we, we let employers do every dirty trick in the universe against workers who want to organize. It is illegal to fire a worker because they want to organize, but employers know they can do that with impunity. If they fire the worker, the most they have to do is pay the difference between lost wages and whatever the worker earned while they were fired. What about so, 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 so sometimes that's nothing more than $100. So it's worth it to tell the three workers who want to organize, you're fired and I have to pay $300. So what? What is the solution and where does the National Labor Relations Board stand, the arbiter? Where does it stand on these issues? So the solution is the House of Representatives has passed what's called the PRO Act. Which, uh, which repeals the Taft-Hartley amendments. It gets rid of the right to work amendments, and then it goes further to protect workers while they are organizing from intimidation from the employers, because the employer is allowed to pull you in 
to a private meeting and threaten your job. Uh, the employer is allowed to force you to attend the meeting in which they can threaten your job. And so by leveling the playing field and leaving the democratic process of choosing the workers' voice to the workers, uh, we, we, we can actually organize workers. Workers want to have voice. They want to be protected from discrimination in the workplace because uh, bosses are capricious about, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, and in these trying times uh, where workers want to feel safe and want to know that maybe I can stay home because my boss hasn't provided the personal protection equipment, I'm going to be empowered. So uh, that law recognizes all the faults. It does what Canada did which is over time Canada understood how precarious that structure was. They had copied our original form, but they over time amended their law to strengthen the, the balance between labor and management. The result is their drop in union density is far less than our drop in union density, even though we're facing the same companies because the same companies that operate here are part of the industrial heartland for Canada as well. And so th these are the kind of changes that have to take place. The National Labor Relations Board has, this, has, has been turned into a football where rather than accept precedent of its own decisions, uh, we will get Republicans who will come in as they are now and rather than re recognize and rather than respect uh, precedent, they'll just flip on decisions, uh, important decisions like um, uh, the who who actually is responsible, who's the responsible employer. Well, employment relations have become far more complex. It's so often the case that a worker at a logistics center for Amazon, for instance, doesn't really work for Amazon. They work for a subcontractor who works for a subcontractor who works for the subcontractor that Amazon got to run the warehouse. There are three levels away from Amazon. William Spriggs, Professor of Economics at Howard University and Chief Economist of the AFL-CIO, thank you for coming on the broadcast and please come back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. Morris Pearl is the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires. He is as famous perhaps for being a partner at BlackRock, the world's largest economic firm, largest financial services company. Welcome to the broadcast, Morris. Great to be on your show, Llewellyn. Thank you for having me. And what do patriotic millionaires do besides patriotism and how do they express their patriotism? Well, basically, we're a group of hundreds of wealthy business people and investors from around the country. And we are advocating, we are trying to advocate to our government officials that we do not want to live in a country with a few rich people and lots of poor people. That doesn't work for us. That doesn't work for business. It doesn't work for investing. And we are advocating for specific policies, higher wages, more progressive taxation, and less influence of big money in politics to try to make that a reality so that our children and grandchildren have the kind of opportunities that we had. How are we going to fix the disparity? How are we going to fix the 
really low wages than most people work for, and certainly the minimum wage is pathetically low, and uh, those who are very well paid. And you can see this disparity in any city, any community, at any time, almost. Yes, we are advocating for higher minimum wages. We have been promoting very heavily higher wages. We've been trying to dissuade our Congress people of the myth that higher wages are bad for business. We can bring in people that own businesses who can explain that how much money their customers have in their pockets is a lot more important to them than the wages of the one guy who's standing behind the bar pouring beer. And that's the kind of thing we do. We're also advocating for more fair taxation. So that those at the top, those who make more money, pay higher tax rates than those people that have to work for a living, not lower tax rates as is currently the case. And we're also advocating for different faces in Congress by allowing people that don't have big money to have this kind of access to the Congress people that we enjoy all the time. We're advocating for the kinds of systems like we have in New York here, where Congress people, people running for office, don't have to know people who are rich real estate developers, but can just raise money from the people in their community if they have enough money to run for office. And those are the kinds of things that we think will make a difference in the long term for the American people, all of them. And you get headlines when you say tax us, you're prepared to pay taxes, you don't jump on the bandwagon. This will be the end of civilization as we have known it. It won't tax anymore, which you hear from some wealthy segments. Well, there are certainly some wealthy people who claim that paying tax will mean the end of Western civilization, but that's not the case. We, our nation built huge businesses and huge things when marginal tax rates are 70, 80, even above 90%, the very people that are complaining the loudest about their taxes being raised being unfair were the people who started businesses like Home Depot when, ta when they were paying 70% tax rates above $100,000 a year. It's, it's completely a myth that lower tax rates are what's needed to build the economy. This nation was great in reality when tax rates were much higher than they are now. There is a fear of inflation, that if we increase wages at the bottom, we'll, we'll go towards inflation. Already the money supply is quite large in relation to the size of the economy. Uh, there are those who say that massive inflation is in the pipeline. How do you answer that? Look, we have not seen any signs of massive inflation. If anything, our leaders are worried about deflation, not inflation. We have seen real wages for actual working people dropping over the course of years. No, inflation is not what I'm worried about. Inflation would actually not be a bad thing for average middle-class homeowners whose major expense is their home mortgages that are fixed. Inflation is really only something to worry about for the very wealthy whose investments are in stocks and bonds and things like that that will actually have to worry about inflation. No, it's not a problem. Corporations have always used inflation as a way of reducing their obligation, haven't they? And governments too, from time to time. It's not unknown and it's not necessarily a terrible thing for most people. How do you go about your business? Uh, do you, besides lobbying Congress, going on television, writing op-eds, how do you generate excitement in your own community of the wealthy? Uh, those are the kinds of things we do. 
most people actually understand our case very well. It's just they're not the people who are on Fox News all the time. So we have to go on things like Fox News and I can be introduced to someone who has some crazy idea who'll entertain you for a few minutes or some guy who has some brilliant idea that no one has ever thought of before in terms of raising taxes. But still, we're slowly converting the actual people who don't agree with us to agree with us. And we're getting our Congress people and our senators to understand that that's the vast, vast majority of Americans, business people, investors, and people that have to work for a living are on the progressive side. Um, you think of yourselves as progressives. How do you recruit in your own community? Really, we're recruiting people word of mouth. People we meet are oftentimes people who ask what we're doing and want to get involved. And we're looking for people, not just people who want to donate money. Anybody can do that. We're actually looking for people who are willing to speak out, willing to make their voices heard, willing to talk to journalists, willing to talk to people like you. And help increase our efforts at our advocacy. How does your organization differ from the efforts of Warren Buffett, for example, who tries to persuade the very wealthy to give a lot of their money to charity when they expire? Well, we're not really trying to persuade people to give away their money. We're trying to persuade people to join us to help change the rules under which our society operates, the rules set by Congress. We don't want a few very rich people making decisions about how money will be spent. It's very easy to raise money for a new concert hall at Lincoln Center. It's much harder to get somebody to want their name put in front of a sewage treatment plant, 143rd Street. So what we want is for the basic rules under which we operate our system to be changed, not so that rich people will just decide what to do and what needs to be done, so that the voters, all the people, acting through their elected representatives will decide what needs to be done. So we need to change the rules so that collectively, collectively, we make decisions. And making collective decisions is what we call government. And so through our government, we collectively decide how the resource of our nation shall be spent, those parts of the resource that are spent on collective things, whether it's sewage treatment plants or highways or roads or bridges or schools or hospitals and all the things that we have to do together because we can't do them individually. Morris Pearl, Chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires, thank you so much for these insights. Thank you for coming on our program and I hope you will come back often. I will. Great to be on your show, Llewellyn. Thank, thank you for having you me. very much. Cheers. Jared Rizzi is the host of At the Table with Jared Rizzi. Jared, welcome to the broadcast. You are a host on a podcast, but everywhere there are podcasts. In fact, podcasts are conquering the world. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any entity or individual that doesn't have a podcast. Even this program has a podcast. What's going on here? Well, podcasting, Llewellyn, is in fact kind of the last big successful leap of media technology that's made its way out there into the world. You know, we've seen new things that come up, you know, short videos, um, in fact, a great increase in the ability of regular folks to, uh, to, to essentially put whatever they want out there on video. But audio is so much easier to distribute. It's so much smaller of a file. It's so much lighter on the production end. And so what's happened is we are about 15 years in to the golden era of podcasting. Believe it or not, I mean, we are, it's been 
it's been a number of years and what we've seen is it's forced audio reporting and audio storytelling to be recognized. For example, the New York Times has a very famous podcast that I won't name check here, but it is audio first reporting. The LA Times Molly Tool and This American Life just won the first Pulitzer for audio reporting. That was just given last month. So this is all, I think, a recognition that telling stories with the intimacy of audio, but with the depth that you would see in traditional news is absolutely crucial. And it's something that the market is providing and people are gobbling up. And what does this do to society? If everybody's listening to their favorite podcast, what are the commonalities left in society? Unfortunately, I think it increases the deficit, the, the, the siloing effect, because we are now all essentially listening to smaller, more intimate conversations with people that we feel that we know. And in fact, that's one of the ways in which podcasts make money is to put out there and say, hey, you know, you're a subscriber to this very small product in a way that we wouldn't see people and frankly don't see people do for newspapers. There's this kind of almost, it, it is a personal relationship in saying, uh, if you value this voice and voice in both a figurative and literal sense, are you willing to plunk down for it? And that also frees up, you know, that there's no discussion of any medium without a discussion of the business model behind that medium. And so podcasting is, I think, in many ways coming into its maturity with that. Uh, again, I think to the detriment of society, because we see people moving their subscription dollars away from larger pu uh, publications like newspapers where there might be uh, a bigger uh, effort to, for example, cover the community news. Uh, that's not necessarily happening because people are looking for the voice that speaks directly to them. You have not used the R word, radio. Didn't it all come out of radio? Radio is such a flexible medium. It's been around longer than television. Uh, it was the first thing after print. It was the first technological medium after print. What does the podcasting boom do to radio? I think radio will always exist because of the nature of the technology. It's just, it's just too... It's just too resilient to kill. But I do believe that audio storytelling, so I've used that word, the A word, not the R word, audio storytelling is, uh, and news gathering, et cetera, is the way of the future for uh, at least the next, the next few years or so. Because I think eventually the video component, of course, that this is a television program, but the video component will become so bite-sized for regular folks that I think even that will end up being what we will see is essentially the the um, the, the the miniaturization of uh, the, these uh, the, these casts. So we will have people putting out videos that will eventually uh, kind of mirror the the size and breadth of these uh, podcasts. Jared Rizzi. Good luck with your podcasting. Cast wide and bring up the big fish. Cheers. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. It has been a horrendous week after a couple of horrendous months. We hope that things will get better. They do in the end, you know. Until then, take care of yourselves. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy 
full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.